Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 16 to chapter 4, verse 9. Exodus chapter 3, 16 to 4, 9. So if you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. If you need a Bible, there should be one right in the pew Bibles, pews right in front of you, those black pew Bibles. Listen to the word of God. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to them, to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put, his hand, he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back into your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Last Sunday evening, our uh, brother Ben, our brother Ben, shared with us from Psalm 142, and he mentioned 
that when times are hard, we can at least fall back on that mantra, but at least we have each other. But at least we have each other. But if COVID has taught us anything this past year, it's that we may not even have that. Self-quarantines and isolation are now par for the course. They are part of our everyday experience. And some of us have had a taste of what it means to be alone. And I think most of us would agree that it can be incredibly painful, even for the most stalwart of introverts. We might last two weeks, maybe three weeks completely alone, but after that we start to get a little bit antsy, don't we? And we know that it starts taking a physical toll on us, uh, a psychological toll on us. It's no surprise that solitary confinement is a form of punishment for misbehaving prisoners. And loneliness can occur suddenly, can't it, in instances of grief. And loneliness can sometimes be slow, like in a marriage, perhaps. But to be forced to be alone can be a terrible thing. And in our passage this morning, God reminds both Moses and the Israelites that they are not alone, that they don't have to figure everything out by themselves. And this passage reminds you, beloved, that you are not on your own. Whatever calling God may have on your life right now, the God who calls you is also the God who equips you. Perhaps you're in a job right now where you're thinking, eh, I just, I don't know if I can just be here another week. I can't do it. Or perhaps it's this calling of singleness or dating. I can't do it. Perhaps you feel like God's calling me to this. I just can't do it. I can't, I can't be that kind of parent. I can't share the gospel with that family member. I can't forgive that person. And we must take it to heart that the God who calls is also God who quips. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Exodus 3.16. You're going to want to follow along in your, in your own copy as we take a look at these verses. Now, if you've been with us over the past several weeks, you'll recall that we are in the middle of an encounter between Moses and God. We are at the burning bush. And God has called Moses to be the deliverer of his people. And Moses, perhaps with some misplaced humility, has been kind of pushing back a little bit upon God. Uh, A couple weeks ago, we saw Moses asking God in verse 11, who am I? Who am I to be the deliverer of Israel? I'm a nobody. But God says, that's right. You are a nobody. But it's not about you because I will be with you is God's assurance. And last week, Moses asked up a follow-up question. Well, who are you? I mean, if it all depends on you, who are you? Tell me your name. Tell me who, what you're like. Tell me your attributes. And so God reveals himself as the great I am, the ever-present, ever-sufficient, ever-lasting God. And unprompted in our passage this morning, God starts giving Moses just a series of promises beginning in verse 16. He has many, many more promises for Moses, but 
there are three in our passage that we shouldn't miss this morning. First, God gives the promise of companions. The promise of companions. Do you see that there in verses 16 through 18? It's essentially a message from God expressing his compassion to his people and his faithfulness to his covenant promises. I'm going to bring you out of this land, and I'm going to bring you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, and all the other ites. This land filled, filled with milk and honey, that's where you're going to be. And it sounds all very familiar because God has already said it to Moses earlier in verse 8, 7 and 8 of this chapter. But there's also something new in these verses. Did you see what was new in these verses? It says, go and gather the elders. And then it says in verse 18, and they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt. I mean, don't you think that is absolutely remarkable? And here's God commissioning Moses to one of the greatest redemptive moments of history. And he says, the first thing that you got to do is not barge into the courts of the king and not go in and say, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, baby, let my people go. No, that's not what Moses is called to do. He's called to go and talk with the elders. And when they listen, verse 18 says, together you will go before the king of Egypt. I mean, have you ever thought about that? I'm so used to the way the movies depict it, the way the cartoons depict it, those animations depict it. I just picture Moses, this long, flowing gray beard that he can throw behind his back. I don't know why I picture it that way. I picture it that way. And him with his staff in his hand and Aaron by his side, and he's saying mano y mano right before Pharaoh. But that's not the picture we have. Because Exodus tells us somewhere in this meeting are the elders of Israel. Moses, perhaps, is a a kind of definitive spokesman, but the elders are there with him, a plurality of leaders. Now, certainly, this was a matter of convenience. This would have been the easiest way to communicate with a large nation to first tell the elders. In in ancient societies, the elders were adults who were responsible for main decisions in local villages and community, but it is also a matter of principle. God has always entrusted the care of his people to a group of men who together exercise spiritual authority over Israel, even in the times of the prophets and the priests and the kings. It has always been that way. And as we shall discover later in Exodus, even after Moses becomes their leader, elders continue to play a prominent role in the life of Israel. Because later on in Exodus 18, Jethro comes up and says, Moses, you're working yourself to death here. You need a plurality of leaders. And then later in Exodus 24, a team of 70 elders are called to lead Israel. So early on, elders held a place of leadership And over time, the position progressed from a kind of informal position to a calling from God. And in the New Testament period, local elders continued to lead. And here we again see that normal pattern of a plurality of elders, even in the New Testament. Elders govern and guide Christ's church. 
Because the plan is not to have a one-man show, the plan is not to have a one, just one person calling the shots for an entire church. There's not to be a BMOC, a big man on campus, calling, doing everything, being the main star or whatever it might be. And these days we are living in a crisis with authority. We hear a lot of bad news about the abuse of authority in politics and gymnastics in the church. Some of you might know that the number one Christian podcast in the nation right now is The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It documents Mars Hill Church, the church that became a force in evangelicalism only to collapse after 15 years. Particularly, it follows the abuse of authority by the charismatic founder, Mark Driscoll. And the whole podcast is really a lament on power and Christian celebrityism and those who enabled Mark Driscoll. And we listen to things like this, and we, and we have a horrible taste about authority in our, in, left in our mouths. Like, authority smorty. You know, we're like, away with authority, says the authority. But all authority is a delegated power given from God. And authority, when not authoritarian, is God's good gift, whether in the church or outside of it. It's teachers teaching, and it's coaches coaching, and it's mothers mothering. Good authority loves and is sacrificial. They strengthen the weak. They bind up the injured. They bring back the straying. Seek the lost. They defend those under their care. And God gives this church, and I believe all churches, a plurality of elders as its authority. Why a plurality? Because it provides biblical accountability. Godly fellow elders can keep one strong personality from wrongly lording over a congregation. So here at our church at Redeemer, we don't have a head pastor just because I'm here the longest doesn't make me the head pastor. I'm not the head pastor, as all the other elders are always telling me and reminding me. <laughs> Our head pastor is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? A plurality of elder means wisdom, because Proverbs tells us that in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. A plurality means balance. It means burden sharing. Now, it's true that massive changes can sometimes occur through one particular individual. Praise God for that. It's true that sometimes you need to, to buck authority, challenge authority at times, just as Jesus had to do in his day. Nevertheless, God's first plan of action usually is this. Talk with the leaders. Speak with the respected ones. And what a practical comfort that would have been for Moses. God is saying, you're not going to do it alone. you will have the support and voices and encouragement of the elders. And beloved, what is true in the church for their leaders is certainly true for you. Whatever God has called you to, he gives you the promise of companions. He gives you the church. He gives you imperfect men and women armed by faith and scripture and winged by prayer to encourage you, fence you in, and to walk with you. 
But in order for us to be faithful to that call, our calling, we have to be, we must lose our lone ranger mentality. This is my dating relationship. Don't talk to me about it. No, I don't know why they would talk that way. They don't talk that way. But we humble ourselves and we invite counsel from others. And some of us, we need to be the people that come alongside others. Some of you may be the very promise that God has in store for other people. So walk with them. It will mean initiating a conversation. It will mean patience and long-suffering. It will mean walking with them and working and listening. Second, God not only gives the promise of companions, but also the promise of provision. Look at verses 18 through 22. God gives Moses sort of a preview of coming attractions, doesn't he? He provides an outline of the next 11 chapters, and step by step, this is how the Israelites will be saved. Uh, The people will believe. Uh, The king will be hardened. The Egyptians will be plagued. The deliverance will occur. And finally, the Egyptians will be plundered. Now, questions are sometimes raised about verse 18 because the elders go up before the king and they say, give us a three days journey to, so that we may worship the Lord. And it kind of sounds like, hey, were you really being that honest? Because it sounds like you're having a three-day mini retreat when really you're planning to leave like forever, right? So not surprisingly, some scholars object that God was not completely honest with Pharaoh. Now, it could be that Pharaoh has no right to the truth in this particular situation so that the lie is justifiable. I don't think that's probably the way that I would see the the speech. Others say it's a suggestive speech that's very common in the ancient Near East, a kind of polite and restrained request, meaning a lot more, though. Like, the person who would hear it would understand it means more. So, in our day, if someone said, uh, would you please hand me the remote? Really, what you're asking when you say that is, I'm going to control what we're going to watch right now, right? Right? Though possible, I think most likely this is an actually an ancient Near East, um, Eastern bargaining technique where you don't begin with the full request, but you begin with something smaller and kind of work your way up. Um, it's kind of a request that all parents know about with their children. It's like, oh, Dad, I'm thirsty. Can I drink something? And you're like, yes. And can I have soda? Like, no, right? And so when the elders present the request before Pharaoh, one commentator writes, the real question was not how long the Israelites would be gone, but whether or not Pharaoh was willing to let them glorify God at all. Yet Pharaoh was unwilling to give God even three days of glory. But what I want us to focus in on is verses 21 and 22. Verses 21 and 22. And the plundering of the Egyptians. Notice that God does not call on Israel to riot and to loot Egypt. Rather, it says, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and clothing. The assumption here is that uh, in Egypt that there were many uh, Hebrew slaves working inside the homes of these Egyptians. And God would make the Egyptians favorably disposed to act in a kind and generous fashion towards these Israelites. They would consider it to be in their best interests for these Israelites to depart with their possessions. Now, why would these Egyptians want to do that? We don't know. It doesn't say. Uh, Maybe they felt an extreme sense of guilt uh, after a while about about 
enslaving these people and said, here you go. Maybe it's because they don't think it's worth the trouble anymore. They've gone through 10 plagues and they're like, please just leave. We just want peace and quiet. We don't know. But what we do know is that there is an, another aspect here of the Lord's provision. And we should keep in mind that the silver and gold were not so that Israel could live comfortable lives. It wasn't so that they could be walking around with each other, you know, showing off their new gold necklace and their new bling that they have on, right? That's not what it's all about. God is not saying, I'm redeeming you out of Egypt so you can live wealthy, comfortable lives. No, all that wealth would later provide for the beauty and richness of the tabernacle. So God is saying, yes, I'm redeeming you out of Egypt. And yes, you're going to plunder the Egyptians. But you know what? You're going to have all those riches. And I'm going to provide it so that you can worship me. I'm going to provide everything you need to worship me. So while Pharaoh has them making bricks without straw, their new master is going to provide everything they need to complete his own building project, the tabernacle. And look again in verse 21, it says, all this wealth and clothing, you shall put them on sons and your daughters. Now, isn't that interesting? Again, it's not so that everyone can look nice, but this is God's provision. He says, I know this next generation. I know what's going to happen to them. They're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. I mean, I have to provide for them. And he does. I mean, can you imagine being the, the readers of of that verse, the first-time readers of the audience of Exodus reading it, they were the generation in the wilderness. They were the sons and daughters mentioned here. When they came to this verse, they would have been like looking at the clothes that they were wearing and saying, God gave us this. God provides. And this is how God works. One, as one pastor has said, he, does, he not only gets you out, he gets you going. He doesn't just save you, he equips you. He doesn't just redeem you, he gives you gifts. This has always been the way of God. And this is the way he is to you, Christian. When Jesus Christ liberated us from our bondage to sin, he lavished us with gifts, didn't he? Spiritual gifts to enrich our new life in freedom in Christ so that we can worship God. Everything we need to worship God and to be a church is to be given to us spiritually. Ephesians 4.8 says, when Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And what are those gifts? He gave the gift of elders and leaders and teachers and he also gave spiritual gifts for us that we may be building one another up as a church. What's more, God still promises to provide for our every physical need in every calling. We can trust God because he is the one who tells us, look at the birds of the air, look at the lilies of the field. Why would we be anxious about what we wear? And you might think, oh, Lord, I've, I've given up everything to follow after you. I've lost my prestige, I've lost my friends, and God says what? What is the promise in Mark 10, 29? He says, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time and also in the future. I think what Jesus is saying is here is in this present life, I, present life, I give you the church. 
I give you a hundredfold of brothers and sisters and mothers and children. And when you get kicked out of your house for the sake of the gospel, I give you a hundred open homes that will welcome you in. You cannot escape God's sovereign provision for you. God gives the promise of companions. God gives the promise of provision. And third and last, God gives the promise of signs. Look there, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. This is, we see here, Moses' third response to God's call. He says, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Now, you have to wonder how carefully Moses has really been listening to God. And God has already told them what in verse 18? But they will listen to you. And Moses here is not even asking a question. I think it's a little impertinent right here. He's like, but behold, let me tell you, God, they're not going to listen to me. This statement is a severe lack of faith. Perhaps in Moses' mind, he's replaying all that had happened before when he had tried to break up those Hebrews fighting back in the day and those Egyptians 40 years ago and how they had rejected him. And in his unbelief, he responds this way, but God is very patient with Moses and he is very patient with us. Moses wants further confirmation of his call. He wants to be sure that God is really with him, but now God simply doesn't tell him. He shows him, doesn't he? God gives Moses three signs, a staff that turns into a snake, a hand that can become leprous, and water that can turn into blood. Now, these three signs demonstrate God's power and authenticate Moses as God's agent. They're meant to provoke Israel to trust in God and to trust in Moses. Now, often when you apply for a job, you submit a resume, don't you? You submit a resume or you submit a CV, right? A full history of maybe your, of your academic credentials. And the resume or your CV is meant to be a sign, a pointer of your competence for a job. You know, I took these classes. I have this job experience. That's why you should hire me. Now, what competence is God pointing to in these three signs, in these resume of signs and wonders he puts into Moses' hands? Omnicompetence. He's saying, I am the creator of everyone and everything. So he can do anything. He is in the control of all forces of all nature. And all three signs are chosen for a reason. They all point to the superiority of the Lord over Egypt. The original audience would have known immediately about this picture of a snake. Uh, if you're familiar with pharaohs and those kind of sarcophagus, that, or sarcophagi, or... Anyways, um, that are pulled out of Egypt, uh, the coffins, they usually have Pharaoh with a headdress. And what's in the middle of the headdress? It's a, it's a snake. And it, because it's Wajet, which is the snake god who was the protector of Pharaoh. And so when Moses throws it down and takes it up again, it is a sign showing his authority over the so-called gods of Egypt. And can you imagine what Moses does when, I mean, when he puts his hand in his cloak and out it comes and it's leprous? I mean, this incurable skin disease, whatever it might be, God is demonstrating his authority over disease. 
Then there's water from the Nile turning into blood. The Nile is essentially, rep would represent life because this is where fertility and, 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 and the land would be fertile enough for there to, you can grow crops. This is the breadbasket of, of in, in a very arid land. The Egyptians would actually dedicate hymns to the Nile as a source of life. So what is this image when it becomes blood? It says, the river that is life, God can turn to death. God is the God of, who has authority over life and death, authority over so-called gods and disease and death. Now, don't you find it interesting that in Luke 8, that when Jesus begins teaching and preaching in his ministry, in order to authenticate what he's saying and who he is, he gives a series of signs in Luke 8. And he gives three signs exactly like these, all in a sequence. First, he heals a man with a demon. And right after, he heals a woman with a discharge, with a disease. And right after, he heals Talitha. He says to that little girl who died, arise. He, Jesus was pointing to his authority over demons and disease and death. All signs pointing to and authenticating the messenger and the message. But just as important as these signs were for Israel, these signs were important for Moses. The Lord had Moses perform these signs himself. Didn't just tell him, but had him do it himself to assure him, to say, I am with you. I'm with you through all of this. Notice that all three signs take something really, really ordinary. Stick, hand, water, and does something extraordinary with them. And I do think that he is trying to assure Moses and is trying to say, look, I can take a stick, this twig that you have in your hands, and make it something extraordinary for my purposes. What makes you think I cannot use you? You know, some of us here have a great sense of our own inadequacies. We think, let somebody else do it. I can't do it. Can't do it. I don't have the gift. I can't share it. I can't, I can't say it. I can't forgive. I can't. But God says, what's in your hand? What do you have? Cast it down before me, and I'll be able to do remarkable things with whatever you give to me. Now, some of us might start to think, that's what we, we need more of. Not more snakes or leprosy or blood, but we need signs. If we had signs, others would believe, and I would believe. Now, time doesn't permit me to explain why miracles such as these are not for today. Uh, you can ask me at Sunday Evening Fellowship, and I'll probably tell you I don't have enough time even then to explain why miracles such as these are not for today, but I think there is good explanation, good biblical explanation. But here's the deal with signs. As much as they are pointers to the truth, as much as they are meant to authenticate the message and the messenger, they are woefully inadequate, aren't they, to the hardened heart. 
Signs don't create faith. They don't. Pharaoh saw all the signs that Moses would perform, yet did not believe. Jesus in his ministry did all sorts of signs to authenticate and point to the gospel, to point to himself, and yet people did not believe. When the Pharisees and Sadducees, they come and they test Jesus and say, show us a sign, and what does he say? An evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, that is his resurrection. In other words, miraculous signs are only as good as the eyes that see them and the hearts that can receive them. You can see a whole bunch of stuff and your heart will not believe for it will find a reason not to. Many people are looking for a sign from God to trust them. They say, God, if you're really there, show yourself to me, then I will trust you. And the truth is that God has given his final sign, his resurrection. That is his final sign. That of the empty tomb, Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified. And the Bible says that his death paid the penalty of our sins, and then Jesus was buried. Now, if Jesus remained in the tomb and did not rise again, there would be no sign that the work that he accomplished was actually done, was actually accomplished, that he really is the Savior of the world. But in order to prove that sin is forgiven on the cross and that we can have fellowship with God forever, Jesus, what? He resurrected. He is risen. And this is where you say, He is risen indeed. His, re- his resurrection is a sign that Christianity is true, a sign recorded in Scripture and confirmed in the historical accounts by many, many eyewitnesses. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Are you unsure whether or not to believe in Jesus and the sign of the resurrection? Well, ask God. Pray to God for faith, and he will show you his salvation. And if you accept the empty tomb, the good news is that, you, that God will never leave us nor forsake us. And whatever you're calling, he will be with you. The Lord will equip you so that you will not sojourn alone. alone. The Lord will equip you so that you will have every provision that you could possibly need so that when you pass through the waters, he will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And even when you're going through the fire of life, you will not be burned. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word and the assurance that it gives us You have spoken to us in many ways in the past through prophets and priests. And in these last days, you have spoken to us in your son. What more needs to be said than what you have given to us in your word? And so, God, we pray that we would be clinging. No, that we would be grasping and holding dear cherishing the promises given to us in your word. The promise that you will always be with us, that you are with us, that you walk with us, and that you do not leave us 
unequipped to sojourn here on earth. Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes to see your glory, your faithfulness, your compassion. Be our shepherd and our guide. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.